The New Testament readings are taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, and from chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, and then from 1 John. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. From 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Let me, um, let me pray for us um, before we think about this sixth beatitude. We've been studying through these beatitudes. We're to the sixth one this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, let me pray for us before we think about that. Heavenly Father, the thought uh, that we might see you is an overwhelming thought. It's a humbling thought. It's a thought that makes us ask many questions um, about ourselves. Who gets to see God? So this morning as we already have and as we continue to do, we praise You. We praise You that You have not left us alone. We praise You that You have not left us in our sins. We praise You for Your patience with us. And we praise You most of all for Your Son, Jesus, who has come to seek and to save those who have cried out for mercy. And so this morning, I pray that You would help us to see You now to see you in a way that we have not seen you before. And I pray that you would put in our hearts a longing and a hope for a day when we will see you face to face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I read a story just recently about a pastor who had gotten to a point in his life where uh, basically he he was feeling really desperate. And there were a lot of things that were wrong in his life. His church was kind of falling apart. It was shrinking. 
Um, he didn't really know what else to do. He was doing the best he can, he could, but there, it was, everything was going wrong. His marriage was at the lowest point that it had ever been at. Um, but the thing that was weighing on him the most was, was his oldest daughter. His oldest daughter had made a series of, of unfortunate choices in her life. And they kind of culminated with her uh, telling her parents off and running away from home. And they lived a few hours away from Los Angeles, and so she went to Los Angeles and cut off all communication with them. And so this pastor, in his, in his desperation, one day he called up one of his friends and, and one of his mentors because he just, needed, he just needed to talk to somebody else about this weight and this burden uh, that he was carrying. And he told his friend all about uh, his daughter. And he told, her about, he told his friend about the, the many times he had traveled to Los Angeles. And he had gone looking for his daughter, and he had sought her out. And he talked about the fact that despite, despite her actions and the ways that she had even treated them and the things that she had done, that not even despite them, but, but almost because of them, he was drawn even closer to her. That... that even in the midst of her rebellion and her sin, his, his love for his daughter had just, he just forced him to go and to seek her and to look for her and to find her. And he, he desperately wanted her to be free from this sickness and from this bondage that had taken hold of her. And as, as this friend listened, and it was very obvious that this father had a love for his daughter that would, would not be deterred, that he absolutely adored his daughter and he loved her. But then the conversation turned, and he began talking about his church and the struggles that he was having with his church and the problems that were going on there, and then he was talking about his marriage, and in the midst of that, he began, uh, maybe for the first time, to really talk about his own sin. And he started telling his friend about the things that he had been hiding and the things that he had been struggling with for years and the, the sin in his life, and he just sort of laid it all bare, and he began to, to weep to his friend on the phone about what a mess his life was. And through his tears, he said words to this effect, I'm a pastor, and my life is a wreck. And I know that, that my sin is so gross, and my sin is so heinous, that God wants nothing to do with me. And I know that He keeps pushing himself away from me because he knows and he sees what I'm really about. And I am an embarrassment to him. So the friend on the other end of this two-hour kind of unloading is sitting thinking about, what do, I, what do I say at this point? And he sat there for a minute, and then he said, to his, he said to his pastor friend these words. And he thought at the time, I don't know how these will land, but this is what I'm going to say. He said, let me give you a quick summary of what I hear you saying. And he said, okay. He said, what I hear you saying is that you should be nominated for Father of the Year, but that God is an awful Father. You should be nominated for Father of the Year, but God, He sounds like an awful father. And the pastor sat on the other end of that for a few minutes, 
a long silence, and then he finally got out these words, what are you talking about? And so this friend who he'd sought advice from said, well, I listened to you recount in, in detail the ways that you pursued your daughter and how you went into the um, seedy neighborhoods of L.A. and the back alleys looking for her, and you reassured me over and over again that no matter what she had done and where she had been, there was always a place for her in our home, and, and you longed to, to free her from her sin and to bring her back into your home. But when you started talking about your own sin, and you started talking about the things that were so wrong in your own life, that what you described is that it had the opposite effect upon your heavenly father. And that he turned and went the other direction and that you are now an embarrassment to him and you want, he wants nothing to do with you. So my conclusion is that you should be rightly father of the year, but it sounds like God is a pretty awful father. So Jesus gathers a crowd around him sits down and begins to teach. And he makes these pronouncements of blessing. And they're shocking. They're not what the crowd would have thought. The first one, blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he gets to this sixth one, and I imagine everyone's feeling a little bit Um, perplexed and maybe even a little uncomfortable. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I wonder this morning how that lands with you. I wonder those words, you've heard them before, how do they land with you? Blessed are, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because what I imagine, because this is how they they landed with me as I started thinking about them and reading them, is that this is a, that feels like a very weighty and a very intimidating statement that Jesus makes. Because I think that most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we may not say this out loud, but most of us live our lives like this pastor was living his life. And we might see people out there who are lost in their sin and who are running away from God and our heart fills with compassion for them and we go after them and what we want them to hear is the grace and the forgiveness that is offered to them in Jesus. But we look at our own life and we don't want anybody to see what's actually happening there. What we see is impurity. What we see is greed. What we see is lust. And so we want to we hide it and we want to cover it up because what we think is that God, if, if what it means for me to see God is that I have to have a pure heart, then I am never going to see God. Because my life is a mess. Behind kind of the, the veil of um, sort of order and, and okayness behind it is a huge wreck. There's a huge mess there that I don't want anybody else to see and I don't want God to see. And honestly, most days I feel like an embarrassment to him and I don't think I'm ever going to be pure. So we ask the question that this pastor asked his friend, what are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean to be, what, what does it mean to be pure in heart? 
How in the world, these are the questions I want to ask us this morning, how in the world do we become pure in heart? And then what is the, what is the blessing that flows from that? What is the blessing that is attached to that? What does it mean to be pure in heart? I want to take a few minutes, <clears throat> and I just want to think about the words that Jesus chooses in this beatitude, this blessing. I want to think very specific. He chooses, Jesus always chooses his words carefully, and you, what happens is we hear kind of beatitudes like this over and over again, maybe throughout our life, and we gloss over them, or we assume we know what he's talking about, when maybe we've never really thought that deeply about it. So let's think specifically about the words that Jesus uses, and I want to zero in, first of all, on the most important word in this beatitude, which is the word heart. Heart. Jesus talks about the heart all the time. Jesus looked around at one point and said to his disciples that basically um, what you think is that all the things that you put into yourself, all the things that you might do, or those are the things that defile you, but he said it's actually the things that come out of your, your heart that defile you. And of course, Jesus was not inventing something new, that this was always the case, that the prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can even understand it? And so what is, what is the heart? What, are they, what is Jesus talking about when he says the word heart? What does the Bible mean when it says the word heart? So what is the heart? And you go, well, the first most obvious answer what the heart is, is the heart is this organ that's in the middle of my body that pumps blood throughout my body. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Not really. But think about that for a minute. So, because it helps us understand what he means when he talks about the heart. If you go into the doctor and they do a series of tests and what they find out is that you have a serious condition with your heart and then you say back to that doctor, but otherwise I'm healthy, right? That doctor will look at you and say, there is no health apart from your heart. If your heart is bad, if your heart goes, you go too. You can't otherwise be healthy. So in that sense, I think this is what Jesus means when he, when he talks about the heart. What else does he mean when he talks about the heart? So is he, what the image that kind of like immediately pops into your mind, maybe when you think about heart, is it looks like this little thing like this, and it's red and it's shiny, and it looks like an emoji, right? And you, you, it's like in like a little smiley face's eyes, like there's hearts all over the place that we see and we use in our life all the time. And like, what do we mean when we use those little hearts? Well, typically what we mean is this is a way that I feel, that this is a feeling that I have. And so we tend to separate the head is kind of the, the seat of, um, of intellect and rationality, but the heart is sort of the, the seat of feelings and the seat of emotion. Is that what Jesus means? No. When, when I was in seminary, I had this one professor who would always, he, he tried to get the meaning of what the heart was over to us, and it just became a thing that he did all the time, is that when he would be writing on the board and he would draw the heart, what he would draw is like this series of squiggly little lines. And what he was drawing was, was your intestines. So that when you thought about the heart, you didn't just think about um, a way that you feel, but you thought about the, the gut, the core, the essence, the center 
of, of your being, right? Um, it's why we use, word, we, we use the word heart like, like this. Let's get down, we need to get down to the heart of the matter. Well, what is the heart of the matter? That means that's the core of, of, of everything. That's the center of what we need to talk about. It's the center of our being, not just our emotions and not just our mind. It's both of those things. It's sort of everything. And it's opposed to, this is not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the pure in external righteousness. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. It's not necessarily something that everybody can see. It's, it's kind of exposed in some ways, opposed in some ways to the external. It's not just what's on the outside. This is why um, you think about when, when Samuel goes to look for the next king of Israel and he goes to Jesse to, to kind of see the sons that Jesse has, some of, one of which is going to be the next king, and Samuel looks at this lineup of sons, and to his eyes, he can pick out the one that's going to be the next king because on the outside... He sees what he thinks is a king. But God keeps saying, no, it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one. And then he says, is there any more sons? And bring out the runt of the litter, whose name was David, who was out keeping sheep in the field and comes in with mud on his sandals. And God says, that's the one. And he says to Samuel, um, men look on the outside, but I look, I look inside, I look on the heart. Okay, so the heart is the, 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 in the core of who we are. Now, what does it mean for the heart to be pure? What is the, that word pure? Like, what does that mean? I mean, I just looked up dictionary definitions of pure. And the first one, I think, is actually the best one. It's, it's to be pure is to be unmixed with any other matter. So it's one thing, Right? To be pure is, is to be one thing. And, and this is, I think, the way in which Jesus is using this word is that a pure heart is one that is, is, is not divided. When, we, when, we read Psalm, when Will read Psalm 24 earlier, it, that's what it talks about. It doesn't go after other gods. It actually, a pure heart has one hope. It has one focus. It has one thing that, that it is centered on. Um, another way to say it is it's not duplicitous. Isn't that a great word? I just wanted to use that word today. It's not duplicitous, which is what? To be duplicitous is to be, it's to be two-faced. It's to be one thing over here, but in reality, you're actually something else. We talk about somebody who has, who maybe, maybe we have a meeting with somebody and we meet with them and we realize what they had were pure intentions with us. And pure intentions would be, it didn't mean that they sat down with us under the, the guise of telling us one thing, but really what they were there for was to tell us something else. They were pure in their intentions. Not, not divided, not duplicitous, not two-faced. And so what is Jesus, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, what is he opposed to and what is he against? Well, Jesus tends to beat the same drum over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospels because Jesus was very in tune with who, with who was around him and what they had been influenced by. 
And who was around him? Well, he always had religious leaders around him. He had the scribes and the Pharisees around him. He had people who were very um, in tune with the law, who had even added on to the law to describe the law in greater detail so that people would be able to follow the law and to keep the law. And so what Jesus was dealing with was an entire culture that had been influenced by a religion that was increasingly becoming um, almost exclusively external. It was becoming almost exclusively um, ceremonial, right? So that when Jesus' disciples are with him and they eat and they didn't wash their hands, everybody's outraged. You're supposed to wash your hands, not because it's like clean to do that, but it's part of the ceremonial way that we show that we are people who are pure. And so Jesus comes into that and says, no, blessed are the pure in, in heart like deep down, like on the inside. Because to them, it was very obvious who was pure and who was not pure. We have very easy ways to delineate that, that we can kind of look down these list of regulations, and if you meet these list of regulations, then obviously you're one who is pure. And if you don't, obviously you're one who is impure. And Jesus turns all of that on on its head. And what he's saying is so tricky because the impure heart isn't just one who looks like a wreck on the outside. The impure heart isn't one who looks necessarily immoral. In fact, the impure hearts that Jesus is addressing, obviously, are ones, from what I just described, who looked very moral, very religious, very centered on doing the right thing, and who were very good at doing the right thing. And yet Jesus is telling them that your hearts are not pure. Because their impurity was precisely the fact that they were covering up their sin with this sort of external adherence to regulations. So that when you looked at them, what you saw was this thing, this facade that looked pure, but inside they were rotting. And so a few chapters later in Matthew's Matthew's Gospel, Jesus pronounces these woes to them which is always, I've always wanted to pronounce woes to somebody. What does woe mean? Woe means to, to weep and wail and to mourn. He's, he's actually calling them back to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn and who repent over their sins. So he's calling out to a group of people and he's telling them um, these woes. And, and the woes that, that Helen read to you, listen to one of them. It says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and full of lawlessness. Jesus didn't mince his words, right? Hypocrites. But they look so good, right? And they look so pure, and their life looks so excellent. Uh, There's a Puritan pastor and and author named Thomas Watson um, who put it very plainly. He um, He said, morality can drown a man as fast as vice. Now think about that for a minute. What is a vice? Vice is, um, so what is morality? Morality is um, conformity to um, um, 
whatever seems to be good, right? Morality can drown a man just as fast as vice. What is vice? Um, Anything, lawlessness, addiction. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. It was hard for the people in Jesus' day to wrap their minds around. This is why Jesus keeps beating this drum over and over and over again. Morality can drown a man just as fast as vice. And then he goes on to describe it more. He said a vessel can sink, a vessel like a ship, can sink full of gold or full of dung. It doesn't really matter. The opposite of a pure heart is a hypocrite. And Jesus was very, he was not gentle with hypocrites. He was very direct with hypocrites because they appear one way on the outside. In other words, they're using the things of God. They're using God's law. They're using religion. They're using God's name to actually make people think one thing of themselves when inside their heart they really don't want anything to do with him and they cannot humble themselves to the point of crying out for mercy. And Jesus hated that. And he called it out over and over and over again. The opposite of a pure heart is a, is a hypocrite. They appear one way on the outside. In reality, there's something else. Because a hypocrite masters in external laws. They master in accepted cultural norms in order to appear pure. But they're really just using those things to mask their impurity. Because what the, the last thing that they want to do, the last thing they want to do, is truly repent. I will try everything else first. Give me more time. Let's, make, let's, let's divide the law down in a, in a way where I can, I can kind of understand it and keep it. Let me pray a little harder. The last thing that they want to do is cry out for mercy. And so maybe this begs the question, you think about in what ways might we do this in our own context? In our, own, in our own city, in our own section of the country, um, maybe in our own church, in our own neighborhoods, in what ways um, do we adhere maybe to some sort of norm in order to use that norm to appear pure on the outside because what we actually want to do is we don't want to actually deal with what's on the inside. Now, I'm going to leave that a little bit to your imagination and also to uh, your community, your neighborhood groups, if they're still meeting, to, to tease out some of those. But let me think about two categories, and the first one is, is the churchy one, right? This is always a temptation for those who are in church, and the longer that you're in church, the more it becomes a temptation. Because what you do is you begin to learn, well, there's certain ways in which I might behave and I might act, and there's certain language that I might use, there's certain things I must know, and if I simply conform to those things and I say the right things, then nobody really questions me. And it can become like a wall and a fortress that we build that says, see, look, he's pure. But on the inside, maybe you're lonely and you're scared and you're tired of being a hypocrite. And so we can go like a churchy way. We could go maybe a couple directions. We could go um, like theological precision. 
theological purity, Bible knowledge, that, you know, if I can answer the right questions, then that's that's how I know that I'm in. That's how I know that I'm pure. We could go um, the direction of being concerned about the right things, that I'm concerned about the right um, ills in society, and if I, if I at least practice mercy or appear merciful, then, then I will be somebody who kind of nobody questions. And Jesus says, both of those things, they're great. Study the Bible, learn it. I want you to have answers to those questions. And I love theology because it's about me. And I love mercy because I talk about it all the time. But if you're using good things to basically avoid dealing with the heart, then you find that morality can drown a man just as quick as vice. But it's a lot more sneaky. You think about societal norms, right? Societal purity, I mean, we can, I mean, we could go on this list for a long time. It's, you know, we appear okay if we eat the right food, if we weigh the right thing, if we exercise the right way, if we live in the right neighborhood, if we handle our money in the right way, um, if we culturally consume in an appropriate way, we may all define that different ways. And this is what the Pharisees were doing with the law of God. They were redefining the law in order to make it manageable and keepable for them so that they could tell if they were pure and they could also tell who was not pure. And we can do that in a thousand different ways. The writer um, and author Henry Nouwen he would always say this, this came up in his writing over and over again. He said, there's three lies that I'm always prone to believe. And they're this, that I am what I have, that I am what I do, and that I am what other people think of me. If I am, that I am what I have can become a veneer that I, I, I have to show people this is what I have This is what makes me okay. This is what makes me pure. That I am what I do. See, he does the right things. That I am what other people think of me. Nothing will drive us further from repentance and further into hiding than believing those three lies. So so how do we get a pure heart then? Sounds like our hearts are pretty messed up. How do we get a pure heart? Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, who are the pure in heart? Essentially, they are those who are mourning the impurity of their hearts. They are ones who look in and they, say, and they say, I see it. My heart is impure. The core and the essence of me is duplicitous. And I mourn it. I go back to the, I go back to the beginning and I say I'm spiritually impoverished and I, and I repent and I say, God be merciful to me, a sinner, like the man in the parable, the tax collector in the parable. Who are the pure in heart? Essentially, they are those who are mourning the impurity of their hearts because the only way to have a pure heart is to realize that you have an impure heart and to mourn about it to such an extent that you do that which can lead to cleansing and purity. And so a pure heart isn't one who has managed to make their heart pure. A pure heart is one who in humility has thrown themselves before God and begged for mercy and begged for grace. A pure heart isn't 
And, and because of that, a heart becomes pure. Why? Because it is not divided in its hope. Right? What is pure about it? Its hope is in one thing. Is that one thing my ability to keep the law? Is that, my, is that one thing my ability um, to externally conform to whatever it is to conform to? No. My one thing, the pure heart, is focused on one thing, and the one thing is Jesus. 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 He is my only hope. There is no other hope other than Jesus. It is pure. It is in one direction. It doesn't mean that the life looks amazing all the time on the outside, but the heart is pure because the heart is focused that there is only one hope, and that hope is not me, and that hope is not my ability. My only hope in life and death is Jesus. Pure in heart have received new hearts. They've received grace. And because of that, the beauty of a pure heart is that it doesn't have to hide anymore. That it's free, right? Um, if, in other words, if God sees me exactly as I am, and he has seen everything about me, and God has been gracious to me, and God has um, given me the opposite of what I deserve in return for all of the garbage that I have brought to him, and he has coated me in his, son, in his son's righteousness, and he has offered me eternal forgiveness, and he has brought me into his household, and now I'm one of his children. Why do I have to hide anymore? What is there to hide? He has seen me and he knows me. And so what that means is that, you know, you want to see the mess of my life, go ahead and take a look. It's there for you to see. I don't have to, like, put up a veneer any longer. I don't have to wear a mask because I am now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and I'm wearing the righteousness of Jesus. And when my God looks at me, what he sees is Jesus, and because what he sees is Jesus, I see him and I will see him. Listen to the way John put it. In 1 John chapter 3, he said, Beloved, we are God's children when? Now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him. I know John, when he was writing this, he was thinking of this beatitude. There's no way he wasn't because he would have heard Jesus say this. Blessed are the pure in heart. And he said, There's it. When, we, when, we, when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And he knows that the next thing we're thinking is like, how do I know? How, like, but I'm not a pure heart. And he says, everyone who hopes thus in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's he saying? Fix your eyes on that. Fix your eyes on that. But my life's a mess and I can't, and I can't like, do anything right. Fix your eyes on that, John is saying. There's a day coming when you will see him. And when you see him, you will be like him. And your hope in him actually purifies you as he is pure. Nothing else will purify you but Jesus is what he's saying over and over again. And the pure heart has tasted, tasted the Father's love through the Son to such an extent that nothing else comes close. And John says that singular hope will purify you. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. 
I am not what other people think about me. I am united with Jesus. And my life is hidden in His life. And I have died with Him and I have been buried with Him and I have risen again with Him. And so what is the blessing? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know if we're supposed to rank the blessings, but this is the best one. Faith will become sight. And when does that happen? Well, there's a sense in which it happens even right now. Because those who hope in Him and in Him alone, who are undivided in the fact that there is nothing else but Jesus, you see Him now. You do. You see Him at work in the world. You see Him in the work in history. You walk out the door. You look at His creation. You see Him everywhere. How else do you see Him? You know Him. This is Pentecost Sunday when the Spirit comes down and fills His people. You, know, you see Him because you are full of His Spirit. You see Him at, li- at work in your life. You see Him at work in the life of your neighbor. But you also see Him in the life to come. And you will see Him in the life to come. And that's something that we should probably think about more often. I'll, I'll end with this. I was listening to an interview the other day with a woman who was talking about her dad who passed away in 2013. And her dad was, um, I guess you'd call him semi-famous. He would be famous in some circles. He was actually a professor of philosophy for almost 50 years at University of uh, Southern California. His name's Dallas Willard. And he was also a believer, and he wrote over the years a lot of works about spiritual formation and, and the Christian life. And she was just simply in this interview remembering her dad. And one of the things that she said just stood out, the interviewer asked, like, what made your dad special? And she said, one of the things that stood out over the course of my life that was consistent is that he, he hoped in eternity, and it was just always with him. So that he would say, so she said he always, um, it's not that he never got mad or anything, but overall he just felt at ease. He was at ease to be around. Because he hoped in eternity. Um, so much so that she said, she asked him, What's what, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? And he said, relaxed. <laughs> he's not really worried. And he's saying, what, why do I have to be? He was talking to a friend in an art museum one time, and the friend was lamenting the fact that he knew so little about art, and he would say things like, well, you have... You've got plenty of time to study art. And he was talking to a very old man because he was thinking, for the rest of eternity, you will be able to study art. That he always, she said what made him special is he thought like that. And so when he got to his end of his, end of his life, he had a very complicated surgery that he was facing. And it really, they thought he probably, there's a chance he may not come out of this, very high chance he won't come out of this on the other side. So she went to go sit with him and see him and talk to him. And they talked a lot about planning and what happens Um, with family, if he doesn't make it through this surgery, and just all of the practical stuff. And then she said that his attention shifted. And he began to talk about heaven. And she said he began to to cry, but she said they 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 were not tears of sadness, that they were 
tears of joy. And she said that he looked at her and he said, I get to see him face to face. And she said that she actually was worried. She was like, if he has to fight for his life, I don't think he's going to. And I say, what a way to live. That's somebody who hopes, whose heart is pure. Jesus knows how sick our hearts are. Do we? It's the whole reason that he came. (laughs) It's the whole reason he sought us out. It's the whole reason that he lived the way that he lived and died the death that he died so that he could make us pure and holy and blameless and with him for all eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we admit and confess and know that there are so many things that we are tempted to put our hope in and our trust in. And I pray that you would help us um, to fix our eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. That you would help us to see the, the lies that are always around us, telling us to to put our hope in them, to see how frail they are, how weak they are. That you'd help us to remind one another in the midst of whatever we're going through of the hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would help us to long for eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.